always great to be back at The Rock, and uh, some, some people here have been lifting our arms up in the battle for a long time, so it, it's, uh, I really want to tell you how much Jody and I and all of us appreciate that. Uh, for a brief introduction for those that don't know anything about who I am, our ministry started in Amsterdam, and uh, we felt like we were supposed to start a church there to reach the, what we call the global youth culture, which is uh, 17 to 30. Uh, it's uh, young people who are alienated from the church, who have a negative idea about Jesus. I mean, in Amsterdam, you can, you can buy T-shirts with Jesus on the cross, and below it says, I don't love you anymore, sign Jesus. And so it's an extremely cynical place, but it's not that much different than uh, New Zealand, where at Auckland University, if you wanted to mock somebody, you called them a Christian. So uh, I think there's similar problems here in New Zealand like there were in Amsterdam when we started. And so anyway, uh, through like what you're doing, spending a lot of time crying out to Jesus, a lot of all-night prayer meetings out in the heather fields in Holland, uh, God started to give us ways to reach this group of people. And uh, one of the ways he gave us was using music and creativity to bring the gospel to people that would never come to a church. And I'm here to tell you that when you're not ashamed of Jesus, when you're willing to boldly proclaim the cross outside of the church, amazing things happen. Amazing things. I mean, like when I was in San Diego, Chile, and we were playing in this one club with my band, No Longer Music, and in my band we show how Jesus died and rose from the dead. We do it on stage in a dramatic way. And we're in this club, and there's a guy doing the sound, He's an, he doesn't believe in Jesus, and before my translator could translate into Spanish, he started translating. <laughs> and he's like passionately translating, you know, through the soundboard, you know, and, and, and saying, you need to give your life to Jesus. And afterwards, I went up to him and I said, Koke, what are you doing? And he said, I don't know. He said, when you started speaking, I started sweating and shaking, and the words were forced out of my mouth. So here's a guy who doesn't even believe in Jesus, but God is so powerful, he has to translate my preaching. He gave his life to Jesus. I was just with him recently, and he wants to start a, a band there in Chile reaching this group of people, people that would never come to church. The name of our mission is Sigra International. If you want to know more, uh, you can sign up. In fact, if you guys want to pass out those clipboards, everyone should sign up for a newsletter. I have a book that explains how we started, and uh, you can leave a donation for the book or whatever you can afford. So don't, you know, if you, if you don't have any money, you can take a book. But if you have money and take a book and don't leave any, I hope you're eaten by worms. <laughs> and also, we have, a, we have an association called Platform for people who are, who are involved, who are creative, whether that's music or art. Uh, or other kinds of creativity who are not going to be ashamed to bring Jesus outside of the church. And we have opportuni opportunities literally all over the world, unbelievable opportunities. And so if, if you feel like this is something God would call you to, you should consider coming, coming to our school in Germany. We have a school in Germany. We have a big old communist agricultural center that we, we purchased for 180,000 euros. It has 32 uh, bedrooms with ensuite, toilet and showers, 22 offices, 
a big concert hall, like 400 people can fit in it. Uh, all kinds of, I mean, it's unbelievable. And we got it for 180,000 euros, so it's pretty much given to us. And we have people coming this coming European summer from all over the world. And you need to consider if God would want you to be a part of this. You can find out if you sign up to get the newsletter, which you're all signing up for right now. And also, I think some of you should support this ministry. I think you need to set, go back there and sign up. Get an AP form and support us. You know, you, don't need, you can just eat once or twice a week. Like Greg was saying, fasting is important. And maybe this is a way that you can have a fasting time. So anyway, um, lately, one of the, we've been, I've been going all over the world, but one of the places, the new places that we've been going to a lot is the Middle East. And we did a tour recently in Iraq. Now, when I went to Iraq, I talked to, to people there about how do you preach in Iraq? You know, I was talking to local missionaries. And I said, how can you preach in Iraq? And the only answer I got was, you can't. <coughs> it's not possible. And I thought, but that's why we're here. I knew, you know, I knew that God had called us there to preach. And, uh, and you know, I knew it was going to be a challenge because I went to the Bible Society. And uh, in the Bible Society, you know, there's this desk and the normal Bible, you know, like the Bibles, you know, that you have and so on. But under, underneath the Bible is an AK-47 <laughs> with a big bayonet on it. And I'm like, there's a machine gun under your desk. And there are girls going, yeah, you know, it's just normal security. And so, so we're in Iraq. Now, I'm not only in Iraq, but I'm in Iraq with my two sons. You know, it's one thing to go into places like that, you know, on your own. But it's another thing when your, your family is there with you, right? And we're driving in, in an unair-conditioned un van. It's 45 degrees 12 hours going through checkpoints with all these guys with machine guns, and we're told, you cannot preach here. It is not possible. It's too dangerous. And so I want to show you a two-minute video of one, just one of our shows. If you go on our website, you can see 30, 40 other thing, examples of the same thing. But just, you can show that quickly. Jesus came to show us how much God loves us. And that's why the death sentence in my life and in your life can be broken. Well, actually there's a lot of good listeners here. You know, especially for such a gospel and rock and roll and other kind of music. So I guess you're in the right place here. You know, a lot of people like that. I think using music to spread the gospel is a beautiful way. I mean, I'm not pushing, but I'm cool with it. And everybody else is just like me because it's awesome. It's freaking great, man. But we've seen now in two shows, and I mean, we're sure we're naive because we're just coming in and, and we have no context. But God, they, they seem to be open, and, and, and we have a bold, clear message, and people are responding. And hungry and, and uh, yeah we just need prayer and, and, and really 
people, I think, to come here with fresh boldness and fresh vision. Because even though it's a hard place, I think uh, it's a right place for God to move. It's good news. Jesus broke the death sentence. And the Messiah sahab al-maut. And if you would like to know this good father, if you would like to talk to us about this, just go to the fire over there. That fire represents God's burning love. In how much Jesus loves us. Don't be ashamed. If you want to know Jesus like I talk about. What I want to do is invite you to pray with me. Is it better to know the truth and to die than to live a lie and just die anyway? You don't have to? I agree. And that's why we're here. Okay, you can stop. You can't see all the, the text. But anyway, that gives you an idea. Two of the, you saw my two sons there. Um, my oldest son, Aaron, was preaching there at the end, and my other son was talking about what was happening. We were also in Kosovo. In Kosovo, the uh, Serbs went in in the, in the name of Christianity, and they killed the Muslims, and they, took, they, they carved crosses on their chests, took out their eyes and put little wooden crosses in their eyes to show how Christianity was superior to Islam. So you can imagine that there's a little bit of uh, hurt there when, when they hear people are Christians. And so, again, we were told, you can't go, you can't go here. And, and they also had sent people from Saudi Arabia uh, there to get people to join Al-Qaeda. They actually pay people in, in Kosovo to join Al-Qaeda. And a guy said, this is, you can't do this, it's, it's too dangerous. And again, I won't show, show you the video because of time, but you can go on our website and see it. Thousands of people at our shows, thousands of people, hundreds of people responding, hundreds of people responding. I'm telling you, if you're not ashamed of Jesus, there's nothing in, will be impossible for you. I mean, I was in, uh, I was in Beirut, Lebanon in, uh, when was it, uh, September, and I did my second MTV Lebanon interview, Jesus Rock and Roll in Power. And I talked about how Jesus is about love and not hate. And it went out to 14 Arabic countries all over the Arab world. And I, the guy, Jihad, who's in charge of MTV Lebanon, I said, I called him up and said, thank you for letting me do this interview. And he says, Lebanon is open for you. I talked to a guy who's a Bedouin tribal leader. He said, and he said to me, if you come with me, you can go to Syria and preach to the Bedouins. Syria. But he said, because I'm a Bedouin chief, you'll be safe. And you can come with me and you can preach. I'm telling you, there's nothing more powerful than Jesus. There are no closed doors for the gospel. You know, Jesus, he always communicated in the language of the people. You know, if he talked to fishermen, he'd say, I will make you fishers of men. When he talked to farmers, he talked about planting seeds in the soil. When he, when he talked to shepherds, he'd say, I'm the good shepherd who cares for the flock. But if I went up to somebody in Amsterdam and I said, hello, did you know that Jesus is the good shepherd? They wouldn't know what I'm talking about because there's not a lot of sheep running around Amsterdam. So, 
I thought, what would be the equivalent, the sheep equivalent in Amsterdam? <clears throat> so I got the idea that I should build a coffin. So I built this big black coffin. And we had a funeral procession through Amsterdam. And we had people marching behind the coffin two by two and praying and saying, God, give us your broken heart for this city. You know, so that we're not just doing a drama, but we're really feeling God's heart. And so we do this funeral procession through Amsterdam. And the first time we did it, I thought people might beat us up or, tr or throw us in the canals. But they didn't do it because they thought it was a real funeral. We'd go by outdoor cafes and people would cross themselves. And they thought there must really be a dead guy in the coffin. And they were right because I was in the coffin. And I'd be laying in the coffin you know, trying to, to look really dead. And uh, we had, we'd go to this part of Amsterdam called the Lights of Plane, and we had these guys in front of the coffin with these lit torches. I got the idea from a Frankenstein movie. Okay, so we'd go to this square called the Lights of Plane, and there'd be a bunch of Christians there having a street meeting. So there'd be like this little circle. They'd have, you know, acoustic guitars, and they'd be singing, you know, uh, and... Uh, this is the day, this is... And then we'd come in with our coffin and we'd set it down right in the middle of them. And all the people on the street are going, wow, this is great. The guy with the coffin is stopping the Christians from having their meeting. And then they put the coffin down and they stand around the coffin with these like torches so he'd have like this circle of fire in smoke around the coffin. And I would be in the coffin now, when you're not dead, time goes very slowly when you're in a coffin. <laughs> and, one of the, and you don't want to be in there, you know, but you have to, but I had to stay in there because people were coming, you know, they're running out of the cafes and museums. Hundreds of people are running to the coffin. So I would do something like this. <clears throat> I'd lay in the coffin and I'd count down 60, 59, 58, 3, 2, <laughs> One, zero, and I'd do something like this. I'd jump out of the coffin, and I'd go, ah! something like that. I won't do it full volume because I don't want Greg to start praying over me. <laughs> so, anyway, so I'd be sitting on top of the coffin. I'd go, this city killed me with its lies. You told me I'd find wisdom in your universities, but you're not wise. You can't even solve your own problems. You told me I'd find happiness in your drugs, but you didn't make me happy. You destroyed my body. Nobody in this city cares. Nobody in this city loves. And we're all dead. And then I'd fall over in the coffin. Now, on the other end of the square, a guy like Greg would get up on a table, and he'd go, hey, you there, it's true. If you listen to people, you'll die. Let me tell you how you can live. Now, all the people on the street are going, wow, this is great. The dumb Christian's trying to argue with the crazy guy. <laughs> they didn't know we were together. Why should I listen to you? Everybody's told me about their better idea. And look where it's gotten me. Well, I'm not here to tell you about my better idea. I'm here to tell you the truth about God. 
God, that's a bunch of religious garbage. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you know who God is? I would ask questions that people ask about God in Amsterdam. He would give me the answer. Because everyone on the street thought we were having an argument, for the first time people listened to everything we had to say. And for the first time they heard who the real Jesus is. And then after having this argument for, for some time, then I would stop and I'd say, Amsterdam, it's true. I was dead. But Jesus made me alive again. Why not in a city that is known for freedom? Why not really be free? And I would invite people to come and kneel on the streets and give their life to Jesus. And they came, communicating in the language of the people that God is calling you to. Jesus was eating with the bad people. He was eating with the tax collectors, the sinners, the people that were despised by the nice people in society. And all the religious people were offended. They thought, this is proof that Jesus cannot be from God. Because if Jesus was from God, he would not be so intimate with these bad people. Because to eat with somebody in that culture was to be very intimate with them. And so in that context, Jesus tells this story. In Luke 15, starting with verse 3. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Okay, let me explain the parable to you. Now, I've never owned any sheep, so some of my sheep ideas might be wrong. And I, I know I'm in New Zealand and maybe I have, there's some sheep farmers here. So if, if my sheep ideas are wrong, please don't tell me because I've been working on this talk for a long time. <laughs> All right. You have a hundred sheep and there's one sheep that keeps running away. What is this sheep like? Well, if sheep could be attack sheep, you know, if, you could, if sheep could be vicious, this sheep would be vicious. If sheep could bite people, this would be a biter sheep. This sheep doesn't dress like the other sheep. This sheep has strange sheep music. <laughs> this sheep has strange sheep hair. This sheep is always taking the weak sheep off doing back, bad sheep stuff. <laughs> now I'm the shepherd. I have 99 respectable sheep. This sheep is rebellious. He, doesn't, he has a bad attitude. He's a bad influence on the other sheep. The best thing I can do is let him go. I mean, after all, I have 99 respectable sheep. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd looks for the lost sheep. 
All right. Okay, if I have to, I'll look. You know, maybe during my lunch break. You know, I'll get in my car, take a quick trip around town to see if I can find this lost sheep. But I can't go very long because the 99 sheep are in the open pasture. What does that mean? It means they're vulnerable. They're in the open pasture. They're unprotected. But I'll take a short look for this lost sheep. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd looks for the lost sheep until he finds him. Until he finds him. There's no time limit. Whether it's a day or a week or a month or a year, the good shepherd looks for the lost sheep until he finds him. Now, this is a very important thing to understand about lost sheep. Lost sheep are lost. That's why they're called lost sheep. Why is that important? Lost sheep go to lost sheep places. How have I responded to the places where lost sheep go? Thank you, God, that you'll never see me there. I'm a Christian. And maybe I used to go to those places, but I want you to know, God, you saved me. And you'll never see me there. And you'll never see anybody in my church there. But if Jesus came to Wellington, he would know all the crazy guys on Cuba Street. He would know the bouncers at the Mermaid. He'd know the guys from the, down at the Beehive. And he'd know the, the organizers of the Big Day Out. Jesus loved lost sheep so much he was willing to go to lost sheep places. When we lived in Amsterdam, we worked for a time in the red light district in Amsterdam. And in the red light district, the prostitutes sit behind windows. And then men walk by on the street like they're shopping to pick out the girl that they want. And there's this one girl that was sitting behind the window that really wanted to know God. And so I would go there with Jody, my wife, and I would wait on the street, and then she would go behind the window to talk to her. Men would walk by, and they would see my wife behind the window, and they would come to the conclusion that she was a prostitute. Now, I didn't like that. I didn't like men looking at my wife in that way. But I had to understand something. If my wife was going to show God's love to that girl, she had to be willing to be mistaken for a prostitute. You see, if you reach lost sheep, you're going to be accused of being a lost sheep yourself. Just like Jesus. What did they call Jesus? They called him a drunkard. In Amsterdam, they would have called him a junkie. They called him a glutton. They called him a sinner, an immoral person because he loved lost sheep so much he didn't care if he was accused of being a lost sheep himself. What do you do when you find that sheep? You stupid sheep. 
I left 99 respectable sheep looking for you, sleeping out in the cold and the rain. And if you're really angry, you eat the sheep. (laughs) Or tie a rope around his neck and drag him home to teach him a lesson. And that's exactly what I did. I would stand up in the bridges in Amsterdam and I would preach about all the the terrible things going on in our neighborhood and these, and these guys who were kickboxers would come and threaten me and, and I'd think, wow, isn't this great? I'm being persecuted. But what does the good shepherd do? It says the good shepherd kneels down and he picks up this sheep and this is not a white, fluffy sheep. This is a dirty sheep and he puts it on his shoulders and he carries it home. And Jesus said, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sheep who is found than over 99 sheep who are not lost. I know this guy who lives just outside of Boston, or he did, and uh, he's 45 years old He has four kids, and he sells real estate. And he was really involved in his church and really passionate about his walk with God. And he's thinking, something's wrong. You know, this can't be all there is to following Jesus. So he thought, maybe I I should be a missionary. And he spoke Spanish, so he thought, maybe I should go to Mexico and be a missionary. But before he did that, he felt like God asked him to go out on the street in his neighborhood and to pray and ask God if there were any needs where he lived. So he went out on the street and he said, God, are there any, any needs here? And he heard this girl talking to one of her friends. And she was talking about how she couldn't go home at night because her father was abusing her. And he kept running into these young people on the street And he went back to his house and he said, God, why are you showing me this? I'm not a preacher. I'm a businessman. And he actually was in his room weeping by his bed. God, what what am I supposed to do? So he went to McDonald's and he bought all these french fries and he'd go out at, at night and hand out bags of french fries and everyone started calling him the fry guy. And, and then his wife said, well, why don't you tell them they can come to our house for a meal? So they invited them to come to his house, and then he asked if I would come and speak to them. So I walk into this businessman's house, and it's filled with these young people. And I said to them, there was a beggar, and he was blind, and he heard that Jesus was in town. So he said, Jesus, have mercy on me. And all the people around this beggar said, would you just shut up? Don't you know who Jesus is? He's an important man and you're just a useless blind beggar. You're not important enough to cry out to Jesus. You need to be quiet. But this was kind of a punk beggar. (laughs) Because the more they told him to shut up, the louder he got. Jesus, have mercy on me. Finally, Jesus 
was going, who is shouting? And they said, oh, Jesus, it's just that useless beggar. Don't pay any attention to him. And Jesus said, no, tell him to come to me. And I said to the young people in this guy's house, I said, Jesus hears the cries of beggars. He doesn't want you to be on the street. And he said to this beggar, what do you want? And he said, I want to see. And I said, how many of you here tonight want to see Jesus? But if, but if you want to see Jesus, you can't be a proud beggar. You have to be a humble beggar. And so I, I said, if you want to see Jesus, stand up. And they all stood up. So I, I didn't know what to do, so I just started to pray. And the Holy Spirit came into the house. And people were weeping for hours. Some of these guys were laying with their faces on the living room floor, just weeping for hours. Some were huddled against the wall like this because the Holy Spirit was so strong in the house. People were coming to the house 1130 at night, ringing the doorbell. We heard what's happening here. Will you pray for us too? And a ministry was raised up for a time, reaching hundreds of these young people because a 45-year-old businessman with four kids who sells real estate was willing to let God break his cold, hard heart. You see, God wants me to have the heart of the good shepherd. But my heart can be so cold. I mean, I can, I can live next door, I can live next to people for, for years, have next, next door neighbors that I've lived by for years that don't know Jesus and I don't even cry for them. I can even have people in my own family who don't know Jesus. And I, I, it doesn't upset me anymore. I don't cry, I don't, I don't plead on their behalf. You see, I can't change my heart. It won't work. You know, if we were to all go, okay, we're going we're gonna to have the heart of the good shepherd from here on out. It won't work. Because I can't change my heart. But what I can do is I can repent. I can do that. And I can say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I don't have the heart of the good shepherd. You know, maybe when I first came to you, I did. But now I'm, I've become nice and domesticated and comfortable. But I don't really care. And I'm sorry. And I want you to forgive me. And I want to invite you to give me your heart. And I believe that if you respond to this, if you feel like this is a message for you, I don't want you to be manipulated by this, but if you feel like, yeah, this is a message for me, then I want you to repent. And I want you to come up to the front of the church as an act of humility and kneel. And if you can't kneel, stand. And together we'll say, God, give us the heart of the good shepherd. So if you need to come, just come now. We won't have music or anything. Just come if you need to respond to this message. Just come right away. I want to show this, this short clip. It's, it's, a, it's a, a David Wilkerson. 
And um, I don't know if it's going to show the subtitles, but you can still understand it, I think. So just, can you play that? And I look at the whole religious scene today, and all I see are the inventions and ministries of man and flesh. It's mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church rather than the church impacting the world. I see the music taking over the house of God. I see entertainment taking over the house of God. An obsession with entertainment in God's house, a hatred of correction and a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Whatever happened to anguish in the ministry? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. You don't hear it. Anguish means extreme pain and distress. The emotion so stirred that it becomes painful, acute, deeply felt inner pain because of conditions about you, in you or around you. Anguish, deep pain, deep sorrow, agony of God's heart. We've held on to our religious rhetoric and our revival talk, but we've become so passive all true passion is born out of anguish. All true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. You search the scripture and you'll find that when God determined to recover a ruined situation, He would share His own anguish for what God saw happening to His church and to His people and he would find a praying man and he would take that man and literally baptize him in anguish. You find it in the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is in ruins. How is God going to deal with this? How is God going to restore the ruin? Now folks, look at me. Nehemiah was not a preacher. He was a career man. But this was a praying man. And God found a man who would not just have a flash of emotion, not just some great sudden burst of concern and then let it die. He said, no, I broke down and I wept and I mourned and I fasted. And then I began to pray night and day. Why didn't these other men, why didn't they have an answer? Why didn't God use them in restoration? Why didn't they have a word? Because there was no sign of anguish. No weeping. Not a word of prayer. It's all ruin. Does it matter to you today? Does it matter to you at all? That God's spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is now married to the world? That there's such a coldness sweeping the land? Closer than that, does it matter about the Jerusalem that's in our own hearts? The sign of ruin that's slowly draining spiritual power and passion, blind to lukewarmness, 
blind to the mixture that's creeping in. That's all the devil wants to do is get the fight out of you and kill it. So you won't labor in prayer anymore. You won't weep before God anymore. You can sit and watch television and your family go to hell. Let me ask you, has what I just said convicted you at all? There's a great difference between anguish and concern. Concern is something that you, that begins to interest you. You take an interest in a project or a cause or a concern or a need. And I want to tell you something I've learned over all my years, 50 years of preaching. If it is not born in anguish, if it has not been born by the Holy Spirit, where when you saw and heard of the ruin that drove you to your knees, took you down into a baptism of anguish where you began to pray and seek God. I know now. Oh my God, do I know it. Until I'm in agony. Until I have been anguished over it. And all our projects, all our ministries, everything we do. Where are the Sunday school teachers that weep over kids they know? They're not hearing and they're going to hell. You see, a true prayer life begins at the place of anguish. You see, if you, you set your heart to pray, God's going to come and start sharing your heart, His heart with you. Your heart begins to cry out, Oh God, your name is being blasphemed. The Holy Spirit's being mocked. The enemy is out trying to destroy the testimony of the Lord's faithfulness and something has to be done. There's going to be no renewal, no revival, no awakening until we're willing to let him once again break us. Folks, it's getting late and it's getting serious. Please don't tell me. Don't tell me you're concerned when you're spending hours in front of internet or television. Come on. Lord, there's some need to get this altar and confess, I am not what I was. I am not where I'm supposed to be. God, I don't have your heart or your burden. I've been, I wanted it easy. I didn't want to be happy. But Lord, true joy comes. True joy comes out of anguish. There's nothing of the flesh will give you joy. I don't care how much money, I don't care... What kind of new house there is absolutely nothing physical can give you joy. It's only what is accomplished by the Holy Spirit when you obey Him and take on His heart. Build the walls around your family. Build the walls around your own heart. Make you strong and impregnable against the enemy. God, that's what we desire.